This is a podcast from Outspoken Mullaney, and the interviewer is myself, Stephen Lang. Sound recording and production by Howard Templing. This evening's discussion with David Marr is about his recent book, Killing for Country. The subject matter is the activities of the native police in New South Wales and Queensland during the 19th century. This conversation contains graphic material that is likely to cause distress. Our next guest is, of course, David Marr. And that, of course, throws into contention the whole process of the introduction of a guest as well known as David, because I'm guessing that everyone in the hall, including David himself, knows who he is and what he's achieved. (laughs) Otherwise, none of us would be here, but it's my job not just to welcome David, but to give some sort of pricey of those achievements sufficient to acknowledge him and satisfy the protocol, but not so long as to be sycophantic or boring, right? Now... I edit this. I only mentioned mentioned this because while writing what I'm now reading to you, I thought to see what the much-vaunted AI would provide me. (laughs) (laughs) Chat GPT GPT gave me a very fulsome account of his life and works except for one salient point. And it did this on three separate occasions. I started again three times, right? And that was that it said David had sadly passed away on various (laughs) and different dates. (laughs) And uh, an insistence that uh, made me consider that possibly Gerard Henderson had been playing with the algorithm. (laughs) (laughs) Enough. Could could I just add to that, that on the the, uh, Amazon book site, um, my book has been going gangbusters. Um, For the last three weeks, I've been number one in the category of children's books about rabbits. <laughs> and there's just nothing the publishers can do about it. They've, and I've checked, the word rabbit is not in the book. No, I don't think, I don't think I, I've read it, I can't remember no, rabbit appearing rabbits there. are not a theme. <laughs> I mean, it is a theme in earlier colonial Australian history, but it's not in your book, in this one, you know? I've been able, by the most remarkable discipline, to put aside some subjects so fascinating that even though they've got nothing to do with the story I'm writing, I would otherwise have included. I mean, I've got essays in there on the impact of native weeds and on the origins of boiling down, um, and I'm rather an authority on the differences between Spanish and German merinos, but I left aside the rabbit invasion. And now, yeah. I'm just wondering if I, if I should continue with my introduction or whether we should just decide the conversation has begun at this point. It has begun, surely. Yes, I mean, that's it. Okay, we'll just go, we'll just go on, if okay? If you read out all those things, it makes me sound as though I can't hold down a job. <laughs> Please welcome David Marr to Melania. <laughs> So, David, this book's already generated an awful lot of attention, most of which is focused justifiably on the history of the native police in Queensland. But, in fact, the native police don't really get a mention until about halfway through. The first part concerns itself with the history of early New South Wales politics, and in particular the way the land was apportioned to settlers. This first part is just as interesting and shocking as the second. You begin with the career of Richard Jones. I wonder if you might give us an idea of who he was, perhaps also how he came to be your subject. When I made the unhappy discovery that my great-great-grandfather was a professional killer of Aborigines in the Queensland Native Police, 
I immediately understood that I would write a book about it because that was the only way to deal with this discovery and writing is my trade. And um, I, pro I promised the publishers quite a small book um, which would be about the killing career of two brothers, um, Reg and Darcy Ewer, who were officers in the native police at much the same time in the middle of the 1860s. But the problem with me is that I want to know why about everything. And so I moved backwards. Why the native police? How on earth does an organisation of white officers and black troopers even come into being? How is it that they survive 60 years in Queensland despite constant political, constant public denunciation of their murderous work? How come a force of this kind was actually even needed by the squatters? What was it about? And so I'm moving backwards. I'm moving backwards, backwards, backwards. And luckily, by an unhappy kind of luck, um, my family was there to be the spine of this whole story. And the story begins with Richard Jones, who was a rich merchant and whaler in Sydney, who at the age of 36 thought it was time to find himself a wife and uh, find himself a wife. And he found her, for reasons no one can quite explain, in the Thameside slums of London. And she was a woman who had um, a number of young brothers, five of them, and they were from another father, um, and the, that man's name was Ewer, Johann Ewer. Um, probably German, maybe Scandinavian, as a sailor. And he'd had all these kids and he'd pissed off. And Jones looked after all of these children. And as they turned, as they became teenagers, he brought them out to Australia. A couple of them he put through the King's School at Parramatta. He was one of the founders of the King's School. Um, more to spite the Catholics than any other reason, but he was one of the founders of the King's School. Um, and he began, and he also brought with him not only a wife and the first of these young boys, but the first Saxon merino sheep to Australia. And this was a breed of, of sheep that produced particularly beautiful fine wool. Um, breeding, um, raising them was e extremely expensive in Germany because they had to be put in barns in winter. But out in Australia, they absolutely flourished. And Richard Jones, in his life, was either granted or bought or connived or stole 600,000 acres of land. Starting to the west of Sydney, moving up through the Hunter Valley, over the, Dar over the Liverpool Plains, into the Darling Downs, into Moreton Bay. And while in Moreton Bay, um, he had about 115,000 acres, part of which was named Wyvernhoe. And it was while he was there that he went bankrupt. He'd He'd gone yeah, a bit far. Um, can, can, we, can we go back a little bit? Because I, yes. I, 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 I'm curious because that's kind of his later life. But I'm, I'm quite interested. You spent a fair bit of time talking about Jones as... Um, because after, after um, Macquarie, we then get into Darling. And he... He loved Darling. He loved, he loved yeah. Darling. In fact, he, he even named uh, uh, his property Darlinghurst. Is that... Is that, that that's right, he loved Darling. Darling was a very conservative governor, a very dour governor. Actually did, I mean, we're talking about New South Wales when it went from Port Phillip to Cape York. You know, we're talking about your country. Um, and Darling um, instituted a lot of financial reforms. In many ways, he was a 
in many ways, is a very good governor, incredibly conservative. And um, Richard Jones was a Christian conservative um, and a great benefactor of any of any charity that didn't include of any charity that didn't include Aborigines. Um, he was even willing to exert himself charitably on behalf of Roman Catholics, but but not Aborigines. So um, he and he and when Burke succeeded Darling, um, this was at a, at a time when um, Richard Jones purchased a large house for himself on what was then called Woolloomooloo Hill, and and his four-acre garden and house he named absolutely out of spite, um, Darlinghurst. Um, and I think, I mean, everybody in this room has at some stage gone through Darlinghurst, and the sense of spite, I think, is still in the air <laughs> of, of that suburb. Um, but he was, he was um, a member of the Governor's Council. He was, uh, he was a member of the Governor's Council at a time when the, um, the makeup of the council um, barely changed over 15 years. Now, I worked for four years on this book um, in collaboration with my partner, Sebastian Tesserero, who was sitting over there. He, like me, has a legal background um, and he has a passion for searching and discovery, which even outmatches mine. And he did this wonderful exercise. He looked at the land holdings of the governor's council from the late 1820s to the early 1840s, at a time when the Governor's Council passed no law of any kind to benefit or protect the Aboriginal people of the colony. No law. And what he discovered was that the personal land holdings of the members of the Council went from about 140,000 acres in the late 1820s to a million acres by the early 1840s. And the biggest landowner for almost all of that time was Richard Jones. And yet this man is a complete, he's completely absent from the histories of Australia because he was a commercial figure. He was a landowner. And as a Christian, he believed nothing whatever was due to the Aboriginal inhabitants for the land he took from them. Nothing. He also believed that they were irredeemable savages and any money wasted on their education um, or their comfort was money absolutely wasted. An argument I've heard a bit in the last couple of months, but you so, know. So, so just going to the, going to, I mean, there's, there's two questions that come directly out of that for me. The first is, you know, the, how the government of New South Wales in that time was the, the Legislative Council, which it was seven uh, people who had been appointed by the government, and then there were seven citizens, as I understand. Who, who called independents. Called, called, called independents. They became the squatters. They became the landholders, right. which governed... Which kind of... It feeds right into the very present day in terms of the way that government has, uh, government has operated in Australia all the way through. For the, the, just the kind of lesson to those who have, more will be given, if you like. I think that that is, is one of the fundamental stories of Australia. To the prosperous, give a bit more. Um, that, that explains Australia, really. I'm not sure where they got the idea of equality and fairness from, but it, <laughs> but it scans beautifully. It's just not true. Yeah. Um, but, but Richard Jones was one of those figures from that, from that um, council. Um, and yes, their job was to advance their own interests, yeah. and they did. And, and the government's job, um, I mean, I love this stuff. Put up your hand if I get boring, please. 
But after a, after a long time in which the, the Tories governed the empire, think back to your history, ladies and gentlemen. Remember that in the early 1830s, the Tories fell and the Whigs came to power. And Richard Burke, who was governor of this territory, um, as well as South, Richard Burke was the first Whig governor that came to Australia. And he came here with a determination to reform. One of his reforms was that there should be universal education of all children in the colony, Richard Jones, plus um, the Archbishop Broughton of the Church of England managed to prevent that on the grounds that Catholics and Protestants should not mingle in the same playground. Um, and the money saved from that went to the King's School. Um, <laughs> And Burke was a, was a decent man. He was not up to the business of actually, um, actually fighting these turds. Um, but uh, he was a decent man. Uh, but these, the, these Whigs, the Whigs, who abolished slavery in the West Indies, who passed the Great Reform Bill, who brought Catholics back into the political life of the United Kingdom, had this notion that it was God's will that wildernesses become productive. And it was Burke who said to the squatters, go out there. No limits, nothing reserved for the Aboriginal people, nothing at all, unlike settlement in North America or Aotearoa, New Zealand, or indeed in South Africa, go out and take the lot. And that was the unique condition of Australian colonisation. So, the, yeah, that goes to the second question I was going to ask, which is when they did that, when Burke suggested that and when the Legislative Council banked it and everything, these were, as you described, they were good Christian men, men, people of high ideals, and yet they could not see the Aboriginal people as human beings like themselves. And I would just wonder, was that cognitive dissonance simply out of greed? Is that what it, is that, is that what it comes down to it? Or, or, or is there something more fundamental going on there. There are, there are people who tell me that I should not have written this book in the way I've written this book because, quote, people were different then. Um, I don't believe people were different then. I believe ideas were different then. I believe the aims of society were different, all kinds of things. But greed and cruelty are continuous, um, continuous, um, continuously present in the human race. Um, and yes, greed and cruelty had a, a great deal to do with it. Um, but there is actually a fascinating number of contradictions, and I love contradictions. I think contradictions are a way to finding the truth. But there are a number of contradictions um, about the attitudes to the Aboriginal people. There was a whole range of attitudes from... from um, these are human beings, they need our help, they need our protection, how dare you do this, this killing must stop, this theft must stop. Right through to, they are barbaric animals, um, they are not really human beings, they are the sons of, sons of Cain um, and they can never be redeemed, etc., etc. A whole range of things. The Church of England was appalling, partly because the idea was that the Church would be given a large endowment of Aboriginal land in order to, you know, to finance itself, um, partly because the church was an arm of government. But there were wonderful, particularly congregationalists, some good Methodists, good Presbyterians, and 
from time to time, these fabulous Quakers, you know, who just came through, just came through and told the truth. But Richard Burke had the Quakers to afternoon tea one in, in the late 1830s at, Par at Government House Parramatta. And they just told him, you know, if you keep taking the land, there will be violence. You know, it's just very simple. It's their land. It's clearly, it's clear that they own it. It's theirs, etc., etc. So there was a big range of people. But the money, which was not just the individual squatters here, but their backers, their financial backers in London and the wool industry in England um, pushed, pushed things out and in this peculiarly brutal way, brutal even by the standards of the empire, we keep nothing back. Everything is available, except oddly enough around here, which is an interesting little side story. Yeah, but there is an interesting side story about, but that was partly because when the penal colony was formed, there was a kind of limit put around it of about, oh, I didn't about mean 50 that. miles. No? I didn't mean that. Um, Moreton Bay, as you know, uh, could not be settled because it was the hinterland of the penal colony and this is the same system that operated in the Hunter Valley and not until the penal colony shut down was it opened up for squatters. Richard Jones, um, from his position on the Legislative Council, knew when the, knew when the um, restrictions on the settlement were going to be lifted and he had tens of thousands of sheep waiting roughly up where Toowoomba is now. And whum, he got them down and seized, seized the land. Um, but no, the, um, Governor Fitzroy was troubled um, by the confrontations between um, the squatters and the Aboriginal people here in the Bunya forests because he understood, he understood that every two or three years there would be mass gatherings of Aboriginal people to harvest the bunya nuts. And that those had been, and that they were a, a, a political issue. In New South Wales, before Queensland broke away in 1859, the native police were at least restricted by one rule. And that was that they were not to ride in and murder absolutely peaceful gatherings of Aboriginal people. And the gatherings at the Bunya for overwhelmingly were completely peaceful. Yes, they stole some stock. There's no doubt about that. They killed and stole stock. But they were completely useful. But they scared the bejesus out of the squatters just because they were so large. And so Fitzroy put, said, we will reserve the Bunya forests for the Indigenous people. But of course he didn't enforce the rule, so they were all just taken. And when Queensland became Queensland, Richard Jones was one of those who um, argued that the native police should not be trammelled, was the word, and the trammelling that worried the squatters was this rule of not murdering peaceful, large collections of Aboriginal people. And the trammelling rule was raised in Queensland, it was obliterated in Queensland, and so um, the Bunya forests became scenes of, um, of carnage. So just to give, give everyone in the room some kind of timeline of what we're dealing with here, we're, we're kind of getting up to about 1840 or kind of the mid-40s by this time when... when late the, 40s. I suppose late yeah, 40s, yeah. The, the expansion of... Take a step back. The, the invasion of Australia is being undertaken by shepherds with vast flocks of sheep. That I call are, it a unique invention, invasion by sheep. 
Yeah. So, well, it's it, it, yes, okay. There's a, a correlation with Scotland and the clearances as well. But the the the, the sheep are, is there what the sheep are, are being pushed out, and it becomes apparent that the Aboriginal people are not going to tolerate this. So it becomes necessary to create some uh, uh, some kind of body, some kind of police force, and there is there is a, a precedent for this kind of thing, isn't there? Well. By the late 1840s, the, 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 um, the pouring out into the bush by the squatters and their stock had been going on for nearly 20 years. And all through those 20 years, they had been begging the government for protection. And there had been a couple of efforts to, um, to, uh, to put together... A, there, was a, there was a force of convicts for a while who were called border police. The British army, the British had withdrawn the army by this stage, so there were not soldiers around. They were not ordinary police as we understand it. Some towns had a constable, but that was about it. And so, what they did in, we're still talking about New South Wales, top to bottom, what they did was to set up a force here, which was modelled on forces that had operated in the British Empire, in South Africa, in India, in New Zealand and North America which is where white officers recruited local troopers to advance the business of colonisation. And while this seems to us incomprehensible looking back, um, you do have to understand the position of the young men at the time who signed up with the native police. These forces worked very well across the empire and they'd worked very well in the Spanish Empire, the Portuguese Empire, the Belgian Empire, and they were also at this time working well in the French Empire out in the Pacific. You had local, you had white officers, local troopers. And this was set up in 1848 and it operated for about a decade before Queensland broke away and then it was absorbed into Queensland. By that time, New South Wales was quiet, um, the work of killing had been done and the native police then concentrated their work um, north of the border. Yeah. And so they recruited their, 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 their um, soldiers elsewhere. This was the thing because they, they, they understood, the, the government understood that people who were from the Murrumbidgee area wouldn't have the same, uh, wouldn't have any compunction about killing people. Well, they, 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 they recruited along the Murrumbidgee. There's some very, there's some very steamy rhetoric about the beauty of the Murrumbidgee warriors and their, their gallantry and their gorgeousness, you know, one way or another. Um, but they recruited them down there and then they brought them up first to the Darling Downs and then further north to do their work. And for these men who were so absolutely attached to their own country, but living in a broken world where their futures were completely obscure, signed up with the force, were moved north, and for them, the Aboriginal people of the Darling Downs were as foreign as were the white officers leading them. The, and, and so this was the basic idea. Recruit from as far away as possible, it made desertion very difficult as well. Queensland, to, to understand Queensland, you have to understand that before gold was discovered, Queensland was broke. It was broke. And its independence from New South Wales was delayed for years as, as, as the people up here 
desperately argued that they couldn't afford to take on any of New South Wales' public debt. That was one of the reasons for the delay. Another reason was, you know, a very, actually, a very sensible notion that Brisbane was a ridiculous place to have a capital. Um, <laughs> but but um, that delay went on, that delay went on for some time. Um, but, but the native police then, up here, as I say, untrammeled, um, did whatever they liked, and they did it without ever having any legislative basis for their work. They were always operating outside the law, and one of the virtues of Queensland is, at least they were candid about this. New South Wales, the old government in New South Wales, the rhetoric was fabulous, but in Queensland, at least the Attorney General was willing to say, this is not a police force, this is a paramilitary force, it operates without law, um, and it operates at the will of the government, and its, and its purpose is to clear the land of troublesome Aboriginal people. I mean, in fact, the first, the first captain of the native police, who was Frank Wheeler, you talk about him in the book, he actually refused to, for a while, he refused to work until he was given some kind of legislative well, authority to do what he was supposed to be doing. This strange man um, uh, was, was a very interesting mixture of the appalling and, and some, kind of, some kind of good. And he wanted written instructions from the government, at this point it was still the government in Sydney, to say what his troops could do. Because he perfectly understood that his troops were out there murdering. And he wanted some way of protecting himself and them. He was strangely fond of his men, um, he, to protect them from the law. So he sort of went on strike. Um, he, he brought the men up from the Murrumbidgee and sat them on what's now the, the border, on the McIntyre, and, and told the governor, essentially, I'm not budging until I get written orders that allow me to do what you want me to do. And he never got them. And he was finally compelled to move north and um, in particular to move north into the area around um, Marichidor. That was the... Yeah. And Maryborough, then, sorry, yeah, Maryborough. I was, was going to say Maryborough because yeah. there's some very compelling chapters in the book about Maryborough itself, which brings us back to the Oars, right? Because we've got Edmund Orr, who is the father yes. of Reginald and, and Darcy. But uh, no, he's the uncle of Darcy, but anyway, yeah. Keep it's going. not as complicated as that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... After he emerged from bankruptcy, Richard Jones, um, uh, because he was a really devout Christian, um, managed to hide his main asset, his sheep, in the names of my great-great-great-grandfather and another one of his brothers-in-law. And so once the creditors had been paid off with six shillings in the pound, um, Richard Jones re-emerged with about 185,000 acres on the... On the in the hinterland of Maryborough. Um, and, um, but he, he didn't like living in the bush, so he bought himself 90 acres along the Brisbane River in Brisbane, um, put up a beautiful bungalow, and he called, he called his new establishment New Farm. Um, and he lived down there. But once again, he was a rich squatter. Once again, he saw 
no reason um, for compensating the Aboriginal people from his lands at all. He became um, a very loud, a very loud um, advocate for the native police's absolute brutality. Um, and his brother-in-law, Edmund Ewer, um, the only brother-in-law of the, of the five that really stuck with him and stuck with him as his principal lieutenant for about 25 years out in the bush um, managing these huge spreads of land, living on the frontier, living with violence, living with killing. And you were, um, and, and another one of the Ewer brothers was actually killed by the Aborigines um, on the Brisbane River in 1845. And, um, and that rather took the wind out of Edmund Ewer's sails. He, be he became a businessman and a magistrate in Maryborough. And it was his two sons he then put into the native police as officers. One of them had been to King's, and oddly enough, there's nothing in the King's school records to celebrate this man's achievements on the frontier as an officer in the native police. It's the oddest thing. Um, it's a gap of some kind, which I'm hoping my book will fill. Um, I, would send, I would send a free copy to the King's Library, except that with the amount of public money King's gets every year, I think they can afford to buy a copy for themselves. Um, and so there are then these two boys, Reg, um, Reginald Charles Herber Ewer, named for some reason after the Anglican Archbishop of Calcutta, um, the man who wrote, uh, who wrote several splendid hymns, um, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I'm sure we could sing it if we wished to. But anyway, Reg was named after him. And he uh, became an officer of the Native Police. He's a very dutiful officer. He had what, uh, what was most desired, discretion. What an ugly word that is when you look at it closely. A combination of judgment and secrecy. He had discretion, but we do know a good deal about the killings that he conducted. They're all there. His brother Darcy was a much more, if it's possible, an even more appalling figure, um, a murderer on a considerable scale, a man who was so delighted with his colonial adventures that he constantly boasted of them to the press when it got to the killing part, he became, you know, oddly a bit vague. But up until the killing, he cast himself as the colonial hero of these tales and told the press about them all the time. So, so we get this situation where the officers in the native police will go to the edge of um, some rainforest or something like that where there are Aboriginal people which they have, who have presumably driven there, but the officers stay outside because they don't, seem to have the capacity to move through that thick country or something? There's some very strange excuse here as to why they can't There's a man away. in this room who is the world authority on the, the strategies of the Aboriginal people um, in the war and in their resistance to, to, um, to settlement. And one of the things that made the, the Aboriginal peoples are difficult to deal with as far as the scholars were concerned because these bastards, in broad daylight, you couldn't see them from five metres away. You know, they hid so successfully and you couldn't even tell if they were armed a lot of the time. I mean, you know, if you saw them, they're just walking towards you empty-handed. What you don't see is that they're bringing their spears between their toes. 
wonderfully between their toes. Um, so the native police had brutal strategies. One was to ride at dawn into a sleeping camp and just shoot everybody they could find. They also had, they had um, uh, cutlasses as well, so they, they shot and slashed. Um, and another way was to ch chase um, into what were called in those days scrubs or, or, or um, areas of jungle. The Aboriginal people were very, very vulnerable in open grassland, but in broken rocky country and in scrubs, they could hide and defend themselves very well. The notion was that a white man could really not penetrate the scrubs. They were too thick. They required Aboriginal men. So the officer would sit on his horse outside the forest and the men would go in. Strangely, they would usually strip off their uniforms and they would go in with nothing but their guns and a belt of cartridges and they would kill. And the officer was witness of nothing. All he heard was the patter of gunfire and then the men would emerge and he would never know how many were killed. But that was a very frequent, that was a very frequent um, strategy. And there were always people in Queensland who said, not only is the whole strategy and purpose of the native police abhorrent and must be stopped, but they were, there were also many who said, including the Ewers at various times, the black troopers should be replaced by white troopers who are better disciplined and will not be so savage. Um, but the reply to that was always yes, but they could not penetrate the scrubs. And it gave the convenient situation where, because the officers had to report on any, any uh, time they actually came into conflict with, with that. Yes, uh, they were supposed people. to give detailed, um, Ray, was it weekly or monthly reports um, of their activities. Yeah. Now, these reports have gone missing. And we presume, I mean, this is an organisation that lasted for 60 years, was highly bureaucratic, was full of correspondence books and reports, and they have gone. Presumed destroyed. We don't know when. Um, bits survive because those bits of the records were off with another government department being used for some other purpose. And luckily for this project, um, one of those chunks that has mysteriously survived involves Reginald Ewer, in which he reports killing six men um, uh, in the hinterland of Bowen um, after two shepherds were killed on a property called the Hermitage. We know more about that killing because the proprietor of the Hermitage, a man called Cuff, Cuthbert Fanshaw, they really call no, no, people... No, no, hold a second. I just have to start. Would you mind spelling Fanshaw for us? F-E-T-H-E-R-S-T-O-N-A-U-G-H. <laughs> Featherstow, is that it? Yes, but anybody of any breeding whatever, Steve, knows <laughs> that it's pronounced Fanshaw. <laughs> Much against my will, because it might indicate a certain vulgarity in my own upbringing, um, I was persuaded to put a footnote saying, Pron Fanshaw. His, <laughs> his friends knew him as Feathers. But the, <laughs> but, but the point was that later in life, after he, like many of the original um, pioneers, were ruined, a, an enormous number, I don't know what percentage, but I would hesitate, I wouldn't hesitate to say most, 
most of the first, most of the real pioneers in any district in Queensland were ruined because they didn't know, they hadn't learnt how to deal with the pasture, the land, the climate, the people, and Feathers was ruined. Um, but he retired to a respectable life in England and he wrote really good memoirs. And his account, his account of the day that Reg Ewer came to his rescue on the Hermitage and they chased the blacks for 10 days and cornered them and killed and then sat and cooked their lunch amongst the bodies with the gins glowering from the trees. It's one of the grimmest um, passages of the book. And now that I've told you about it, you can skip it if you like when you get there. But it's one, the memoirs are a great source of information about the Queensland frontier. You only trust them if the writer says that they were there and were eyewitnesses. Um, but then they're pretty trustworthy. Um, rescue me from this squalor. No, okay. What, what, because we kind of skipped past Maryborough a little bit, which because I yeah. because it's kind of lo well, it's not local. It's just there. It's close to us, and one of the first uh, expeditions of the native police was onto what we now call Gari, which was called Fraser yeah. Island at, at that time. And they went there on a supposed punitive expedition to try and bring home some prison, some Aboriginal people who had, in theory, killed a couple of white people. But this was after there had already been a, a massacre in the town of Maryborough. Yep. And in fact, hold on a second, I just want, because you opened your discussion here about boiling down, would you like to just talk a little bit about Maryborough and boiling down? Because do I have I'd... to explain boiling down to an audience like this? I'm sure uh, you do, I'm sure you do. Look, I they, mean, Australia at this point was built on the sheep's back, right? It was built on wool, but then the wool price fell. So what did you do with all me. the sheep, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there was a huge boom in the sheep industry in the 1830s and then a huge bust in the early 1840s. It was a particularly vicious bust because instead of the price of wool just collapsing, it slowly slid away so that everybody kept thinking, look, next year it'll pop up again. You know, this is ridiculous, it'll pop up again. And um, in fact, it was a ruinous slide in the price of wool. And then it was discovered that when the fleece was worth, worth nearly nothing, um, a sheep could be boiled down for fat because the fat was very valuable because it was an ingredient in candles and soap. And so boiling downs were set up everywhere in the 1840s and then continued thereafter. And what you did was you sheared your sheep, you gutted it, maybe you sold the legs to a local butcher, but you boiled the rest down in an open vat for a couple of days. The stench was disgusting. And there are wonderful accounts of the stench um, around Sydney, let alone around Maryborough. There were two boiling downs in Maryborough, or boilings as they were known. They were also places where Aboriginal people gathered because they worked at the boilings and they also ate the rancid meat that was left over after every kind of tiny particle of fat had been got out of it. And so um, 
So enthusiastic did the squatters become for boiling down that the London um, wool dealers actually urged them to, to, to stop, slow down. You're killing all your best sheep. The, 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 wool, the price of wool will come back. Make sure you've still got good sheep to shear. And um, so Maryborough became a, a place, Maryborough was begun by Richard Jones and by a man called Ferber as a place where supplies could go into the squatters, um, fleece could come out, and, and flocks could be brought down to the river, boiled down, and their fat sent away to, to um, Mort and company to be shipped to England. That was boiling down. That's the short lecture by David Maher on boiling down. I've got the half-hour version, um, which I think is riveting, um, <laughs> but I won't do it now. Okay, so it was just a quick aside there, but it's because it's very interesting to know... A whole that industry that don't, we just don't yeah, think of. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and something about the nature of the human animal as well is that, you know, at the same time, we were whaling for oil to put in lamps. So it was like, at, at this stage in our development as a species, the world was there for our taking. We just took whatever it was that we wanted, regardless of any sense. There was no sense that whales had any other value than as whale oil. There was no sense that sheep, if you couldn't take the wool, then you took the fat. Sounds like coal mining. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I found interesting that um, this slump in the 1840s was also the end of whaling um, in Australia because, I take it because kerosene and things had been developed and was, was beginning to emerge from North America, but Jones thought that he would always be able to survive his business adventures because of whale oil, um, and he was the biggest whaler at one stage um, in on the New South Wales coast, but it collapsed too. It didn't collapse entirely, but it never really recovered to what it was before. Um, and of course, one of the things you did if you were a squatter and your sheep weren't worth much, and after a couple of years, and it only took about three years of grazing on the native pastures of southern Queensland before you ruined them, what you then had to do was to take your sheep further out. And you had to, and, 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 and the prospect of ruin compelled you to take yet more indigenous land. So indigenous land was taken in boom times because you could make so much money on it. And then when the, and then when the bust came, you took more to try and save yourself. Everything happened. Um, ev everything, everything fed into the taking of land. The one good thing about the bust times was that the squatters could no longer afford so many shepherds. Now, we're talking about the world before wire, okay? So these flocks of tens of thousands of sheep had all to be shepherded, and you needed a shepherd for about every 12 or 1,500 sheep. Now, these shepherds lived very exposed lives out in the bush. Many died. Um, and they, and the, more the, the more died, the more money the survivors demanded from the squatters. And that brought, um, that brought um, Chinese shepherds into Queensland. It brought Kanaka shepherds as well, if I could use that old-fashioned and unhappy term. Um, but the other thing it did was to compel the squatters to finally deal with the local Aboriginal people because they needed their labour. And that saved people. That saved, that saved people.
people, peoples, families, um, because suddenly the Aboriginal people had something the squatters needed, labour. And the busts were good times for that. And the busts were times of, of um, relative, slightly better, um, slightly less killing on the frontier. So, I mean, when I was reading this book, I was astonished at your fortitude for keeping going through what it was that you were finding. Because we're talking, I think the statistic you give is that the native police over that 60 years probably killed about 40,000 people or more. In Queensland. That is regarded by many scholars as hopelessly conservative figure. But I, I'm, I mean, in the 40 years since serious, fresh historical work began um, on this subject, estimates of the size of reprisals, the deaths of white people were, were pretty well recorded and, and the size of reprisals was pretty well recorded and there have been these very careful guesses about, you know, if you know that a thousand white shepherds or, or white people died on the frontier, and it looks like, you know, there were, you know, 20 killed for every thousand who, thousand, 20 blacks killed for every thousand whites, then you, you begin to put together these figures. Um, and there are people who are now saying, look, it was north of 60,000, that the death toll of Aborigines in Queensland was roughly the death toll of Australians in the First World War. I, I mean, I can't enter those debates. I don't have the technical skill to do it. Um, and my, and this book ends with, um, is dedicated to an untold number. So it's, a, it's a, when you talk about the Aboriginal people being then taken on as labour, this is kind of towards the end of that period of the, of the native police. We're getting up into the 1900s. Is that correct? Well, yes, yes and no. From where are you in Scotland, just by the way? You're, where's your family from? Um, I'm from the west of Glasgow, yeah? Right, okay. Well, in the, in the hinterland of Moreton Bay, in the hills behind Moreton Bay, there, are, there were a group of Scottish squatters in the early 1840s. There were the Mackenzies of Kilcoy. Does that name ring a bell? 60, How, uh, 60 poisoned. In, in, infamous, 1842, um, March. 60 poisoned um, at Kilcoy. Um, a crime never properly investigated because the Mackenzies of Kilcoy back in Scotland with Kil Castle Kilcoy outranked socially the governor of New South Wales. He never, he never investigated that crime. Um, and there were a couple of other Scottish families who also killed in, and killed seriously in the hills behind Scotland, about the hills behind Brisbane. Um, they were, um, they knew about the Highland Clearances and the pur purpose of the Highland Clearances, of course, was to get rid of the people and replace them with sheep. And those people went to North America and sometimes to Australia. But there was a family there called the Archers and they're still there. And the Archers took the trouble to make peace with the Aboriginal inhabitants of their land. 
It was always possible to do. They did it. It took work. They not only did it, but they wrote fabulous letters home about what their neighbours were up to. <laughs> and we, and the, the Archer letters, which are in the, the library in Brisbane, are one of the great treasures of colonial records. Um, it was always possible to employ the Aboriginal people and, and it always happened. But in the 1870s, as settlement was going even further north, um, there were districts that actually tussled with the idea of whether or not the policy of the district should be to clear all the blacks from the land or, to use the language of the time, let them in, which really meant let them stay. And there were fights back and forth between the squatters. The squatters who used the native police to clear their land, which was an inevitably bloody process, despised the squatters next door who were not doing the same because they saw the squatters next door as sheltering angry troublemakers who would come back and revenge themselves. But there came a time when district by district, the policy changed from clearing to letting them in. And that didn't mean an end to the bloodshed, but it, but it was never as bloody as it was in Queensland in the 1860s and early 1870s as the century went on. But, but massacres continued all the way and, and the native police did not expire, really, until just before the First World War. So look, I've probably been keeping you to myself too much. I think probably the audience have got a lot of questions. We've still got about 20 minutes left. So perhaps we could take some questions. If, if the audience can bear it, I'm very happy to. Okay, well, we've got... Um, the book, by the way, is, as I is said, elegantly written. Um, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's a masterpiece of clarity and with very strong narrative lines. <laughs> and by concentrating on the history of my family, I'm able, I hope, to, with the persistence of my partner, Sebastian, to cut a clear path through what is a really ugly forest. Sir, just, uh, just, just a minute, there's, the a, there's a microphone. Thank you. David, uh, was there any connection between Cobb and Co and the native police? Not that I know of. Yeah. I had heard. Of. I had heard, but it's only storytelling. No. So, hands up. Anyone with questions, please? I've got a lot more to ask David if you haven't, but no, I'm sure there'll be people. Family fitted into this. You haven't mentioned them. Oh, well... I need to be clear, this has got nothing to do with the Mars. The Mars, <laughs> the Mars were blame, uh, blameless descendants of a Highland blacksmith who came to Sydney and did okay in Sydney. And indeed, if you look around the streets of Sydney, he became an iron founder and um, did a lot of work for the water board in Sydney. And um, if you seek my name in Sydney, you'll find it in the gutters. <laughs> um, it's there, ma, 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 ma. This is my mother's family, okay? And her, her grandmother, my great-grandmother, her maiden name was Maud Ewer. And she was the daughter of the Reg Ewer that I mentioned before. Reg, who was in the native police for six or seven years, um, was highly regarded by the authorities 
and like many native police officers, was promoted from killing to being a magistrate in the bush. Now, there were newspapers at the time who said perhaps the killing of Aborigines in large numbers is not an adequate um, qualification for being a magistrate, but, um, but this was a deliberate and clever policy of the Queensland government. The point was, as you'll recall, I said there is no, there was never a legal basis for what they were doing. And so the Queensland government put onto the bench in the bush a number of native police officers and the point of that was to have people on the bench with experience in the force who were not going to get nitpicky about the fact that there was no legal backing for what the force did. So that was Reg, his brother Darcy. Um, he was in the force. He killed spectacularly along the, um, along the Gulf Coast, um, was essentially thrown out of the force, and he became a killer for hire um, whose, uh, whose harshness with the blacks um, was a calling card for him as a drover, a prospector, um, a pub owner, and finally, deliciously, on the West Australian goldfields, a butcher. He was a butcher and he died a butcher um, in the early 19th century. That's the family, yes. Plus Mr Jones um, hovering over them as their patron and brother-in-law. David, thank you for this work. Um, my name's Pam. Pam, I, could you put the microphone closer to your mouth? And we can, is that we better? You? That's much better, okay. yes. Thank you. I have part of this um, native police force in my own family history through Fred Wheeler. But more importantly... Pam, I, Pam. I've got an envelope for you. You are the third person in a fortnight who, after five years of never finding another descendant of an officer of the native police, you're the third person in a fortnight who has told me that you're a descendant of the appalling Frederick Wheeler. Thank you very much. We have some talking to do. Yes. yes. I'd, I'd like to thank you for opening the door to your next histories. The, the, the children that grew up in the bush being blended people. Yes. When I discovered that there was a possibility of being Aboriginal when I was 18, I got slapped in the head by two aunts who said I had no idea how it is to put uh, food on the table for your children when you can't get a clean job because you've got a touch of the tar brush. We have spent generations playing white. Don't eff it up now. Yeah. Racism will come back. You're a descendant of Frederick Wheeler's union with that Aboriginal woman. Uh, he had a couple. He had a couple, yeah. Mine came from Tamarookum. What was her name? Um, well, I only have her married name, which was Elizabeth Harriet Wheeler. Her, she took her mother-in-law's, that she'd never seen, names the day before when she got baptised because you can't get married, married if you're a you're pagan. Baptized, yes. Yeah. So I never, I still don't know her real name given by her mother or even the name given by the um, people's name, I forget, who took up Bluff Downs, which is just south of Valley of the Lagoons. Yes, yes. Um, thank you very, very, very much for that. Um, let's have a talk afterwards. Thank you so much.
David, I'd appreciate your advice. For some decades, I've wondered how my father's family came to acquire such a large parcel of land outside Casino in northern New South Wales, Mm -hmm. a place called Doby's Bight. I was taken there in 1956, beautiful country. As I used to say to my students when I taught history, the Bundjalung people wouldn't have just said, here, we don't want this, you can have it. How do I find out how they, as free settlers from England, acquired that land? I'll give you a brief answer, but have a word to my partner, Sebastian Tesserero, who can be seen in the second row there on the end of the row, because he is the magnificent searcher of all of this. Your best friend is Trove. Do you know about Trove? Trove is the engine designed by the National Library of Australia, which allows you to search the old newspapers of this country by the word. It is the most magnificent way of discovering the truth about Australia's past, and it will allow you to search by your forebear's name, the name of the property, the district, etc. That's your best way in, is through Trove. It's very, very easy to use. It has a couple of quirks. Once you've got those under control, go for your life. You can find out everything. But the general answer is that um, in the northern rivers of New South Wales, the native police did operate there in the, fir- in the early years, um, before Queensland um, was broke away. Um, but they were also used the rough and ready method that was used everywhere before the native police came along, which was vigilante troops of, um, of stockmen and shepherds to clear away the Aboriginal people. Um, that's, that was the way to do it. Um, there was actually an argument for the native police that the killing had to happen and it was unfair to, to Christian white people to have to do it for themselves. And so you therefore needed a, you needed a force of black troopers um, who uh, were not Christians in order to do it. Um, but, but have a word to Sebastian, but the, the main thing is trove. Trove is magnificent. David, do you think that there's a connection between the modus operandi that was laid down by the native police and its relationship with the rest of the public and, 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 and the, the authorities and the culture of the ADF in terms of, you know, and I'd, I'd say that right to the very bone, that idea that the people on the ground do what they do and they're doing the dirty work of empire essentially and that that basically this, this idea that, you know, nobody else need bother their heads about this and that it's not anybody else's business to know what goes on in the ground. Yeah. Do you think the ADF has inherited that culture, I guess no, is the look, question? I, I, no, I, I don't... I, I'm not equipped to, to, to begin to think of the links. What I think is, for me, more pressing is that there was, from the earliest time in Australia a notion that the bush could decide for itself what laws ran. 
And the bush got on with what they saw as necessary um, and despised interference from the cities. Um, and there is, there, the newspapers, from the start, the slaughters in the bush were matched by warfare between newspapers in Australia. Australia was full of newspapers. I've fallen in love with the 19th century newspapers of New South Wales. And there were newspapers that stood up for the Aboriginal people, there were newspapers that, that stood up for the squatters, and they fought it out. And in those wars, which I cover in the book, in those wars are all of the echoes of modern arguments against, um, against the Aboriginal people, um, arguments I've heard rather a lot in the last few months. Um, the problem is that people in the cities don't know what they're talking about. They're rich and they're sheltered from the realities of life and they're too fond of showing off their humanitarian values, which we now call, of course, virtue signalling. And also that any money spent on the Aboriginal people will inevitably be squandered because they are savages and beyond, the, beyond help. Um, now, different versions of that, of those arguments I've been hearing a lot in the last few weeks. But the thing that most interests, that most, that most arrests me in all of this is that I think there is still in Australia a very strong instinct that the bush decides for itself what laws apply. And if they want to clear that bit of bush, they'll fucking clear it. And if they want to take that water from the river, they'll take it. And if they want to treat their workers this particular way, they'll do it because of the necessity of the bush. And I think that that's the real inheritance from the, the regime of the native police. Thank you, David. My name's Linda. I'm a Birragubba and Camilleroy woman. I'm a lawyer and I was born in Bowen. I've sat here and I've purchased two of your books, one online and one this evening as a gift for a very clever female lawyer friend of mine. I've lived in Mullaney 20 years, so I'm not quite a local. I have yet to read your book and I will absolutely, with incredible interest. What I haven't heard you speak about this evening is the duress under which many black men were removed from their traditional country under threat of having their families annihilated, their wives and daughters raped and mutilated to become part of this native police. That undeniably happened. Um, but not only, not only were people kidnapped and pressed into service with the native police, but Queensland allowed Indigenous prisoners to serve out their sentences as troopers with the native police. 
but there is also an undeniable history of volunteers, of Aboriginal volunteers for the Native Police. And I very much value a Wiradjuri historian's statement to me, which I have in the book, talking about the recruiting process, which is so difficult and so sensitive. She said to me, you know, David, victims never make good choices. And I think that that explains a great deal of the predicament of the young people who went into the force. Um, but but it, it is not a force where everybody was, was compelled to serve. Um, later on, I mean, there was a decade before Queensland was formed, and in that decade there was, there was a strong adherence to the rule of recruiting from far away. One of the problems that we have in this field that we have found no record anywhere of the reflections of a trooper about why they served. It's just, it's just not there. And my God, the search goes on and on and on. But it's just not there. But when Queensland was really broke, it started to recruit closer to home because it was just cheaper. And those recruitments were more violent and we know that they were also followed by more desertions because if you could get home, you were, you were likely, you, know, you were tempted to go. Frederick Wheeler, whose descendant we have here tonight, lost a couple of his troops, and they were about eight or 10 to 12 um, troopers with each white officer. Um, a couple of his um, troopers just um, deserted en masse. He was a terrible man, they deserted en masse. Um, but we don't know enough about the reasons for which the troopers served, but we do know that it was a mix of forced and volunteers all the way to the end. Thank you, David, for coming up to Melania, and thank you for writing this very important book, Killing for Country. Now, I'll ask the indulgence of the audience just for a couple of minutes more, because I'd like to extend my thanks to various people, uh, to Lee and Rob from Rosetta Books. Both David and Mirandi's books are for, going to be for sale here in just a moment. Um, they'll be signing copies there for you. Uh, please don't waylay them in the, on the way there. They need to get behind the table there to start signing. To Howie um, for lights and sound and for recording. We'll get the podcast up on our website as soon as we can. These events couldn't happen without the help of a, a number of volunteers and my heart thanks, heartfelt thanks go out to them, the people who take the tickets on the door, the people who put up the chairs and pick them up and put them away again, to the Millennium Community Centre running the bar, and Koenig, to Sunshine Coast Council for their support through Creative Industry Investment Programme. The funds come jointly through the Arts Coast and Art and Heritage Levy and RADF in partnership with the Queensland Government. Our next scheduled event is, will be in three weeks' time with Tony Birch on Wednesday, November the 15th. You will have seen the flyer on your chair, some of you, but um, to take it home, put it on your fridge. Tony is one of Australia's finest novelists, as well as being an Aboriginal writer. 
His recent book of short stories, Dark as Last Night, won both the Christina Stead Award and the Steel Rudd Award last year, as well as being shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Awards. He is a fascinating character in his own right, and he'll be talking about his new novel, Women and Children. Our introducing author on that night will be the best-selling writer, Melissa Ashley, she of The Birdman's, Birdman's Wife, talking about her new novel, The Artisan of Amsterdam. This will be our final event for 2023, but we're already in discussion with several authors for next year. You can listen to recordings of our event, the, the podcast, by going to Melanie, Outspoken Melanie. That's two words in your podcast app. Finally, thank you again to you, our audience, for your support throughout the year and for particularly for coming to this event tonight. Please put your hands together once more for Before Miranda. You do. Before you do. Taking charge for a moment. <laughs> this is the eighth or ninth book do I've done um, since the publication of Killing for Country. It is by far, the questioning is by far the best questioning and most challenging questioning I've faced. And I want to thank you very, very much for coming out tonight and for, and for that level of attention and grilling that you've given me. I'm very grateful. And thank you. Thank you.